Kia ora and welcome to the Dawn Chorus for Thursday the 1st of July. I thought I'd do something different today. Remember, we just had June 30th yesterday, so that's the end of the financial year for most businesses and for the government. And it marks just over a year on from the beginning of COVID. And I wanted to have a look at the K-shaped recovery. So we've had an economic recovery, not just here, but all around the world, in which asset prices, particularly in our case, house prices, but also shares all around the world have risen in reaction to the responses from government. It all seemed to make sense back in March 2020 when central banks began printing money heavily to ensure that financial markets were stable and that there was plenty of cash out there in the hands of people they thought would spend it. And they did that by printing money and buying government bonds. Also, many governments handed over cash to uh, individuals and instituted wage subsidy schemes. And we did the same. So, a year on, how are we doing? Well, luckily, we've got some fresh figures through from CoreLogic for the housing market through to the end of June. And it shows that the value of our housing market has risen by 22.8% to $1.5 trillion in the last year. Now, we've also seen the stock market all around the world rise about 80%. And a lot of people have also put aside spare money they had, money they perhaps weren't going to spend on going overseas, and they've increased their savings accounts. However, it's very clear now that we have what's called, or I call, a recovery, where instead of C in recovery, it's K. Because some people have done very, very well out of the response to COVID, and others have done very badly. Unlike in most recoveries where all uh, boats are lifted by the rising economy. In this case, because of the way money was printed by central banks and money was handed out by governments, often directly to businesses to support them, we've seen in this case a massive widening of inequality, a massive amount of wealth creation land into the hands of those people who had assets just before the beginning of COVID. For those people who didn't, who were renting, who were in precarious work, multiple gig economy, jobs, they've really struggled through COVID, not just in income terms, but in many cases, their rents have increased as well. Now, in some countries, um, people who are poorer, people on benefits, and more generally, everyone, received cash payments from the government. That didn't happen here. Instead, the big dollops of cash went straight to businesses in the form of wage subsidies. These were cash payments into the bank accounts of small, medium and large businesses. In our case, $14 billion. We also saw the Reserve Bank print $60 billion. So far, it's on the way to $100 billion. Probably won't get there by June next year. But um, certainly $60 billion was printed and used to buy mostly government bonds. So... How are we at the end of that year? Who was the winner? Who was the loser? Well, we know that about two-thirds, maybe 60% of households own their own homes and live in their own homes, and they may also own some other homes as well. Because they are living in their own homes, they predominantly also have some cash savings, or at least own shares. However, if you're renting, you're typically quite financially stressed. You tend not to own assets. You obviously don't own a house. 
And um, that means uh, you are struggling on lower incomes, particularly if you've got kids. And remember, more than half of our kids now live in rental properties. So over the last year, the housing market rose by 22.8% to $1.5 trillion. Now we know that um, that increased the value of those houses, but there was also some increase in the amount of borrowing against those houses, as some people borrowed to buy other houses and sometimes to buy new houses. So um, we saw the housing market rise by $278 billion to $1.5 trillion. Same time, there was $33 billion worth of extra borrowing. So when you look at the equity gains households made, it was $245 billion in tax-free capital gains, at least on paper. That's in the worst economic crisis in our living memory. And those households now have $1.186 trillion in equity in their homes. We can also break out how rental property investors have done over the last year. They made paper gains of about $60 billion and they now have $360 billion worth of rental properties. By the way, their collective loan-to-value ratio is 23.8%. So they have plenty of capacity to leverage up more if they were allowed. The Reserve Bank looks like it won't allow them to do too much. Now, on top of the growth in house values, also there's been rises in the values of term deposits, so that's just plain savings. You could say that's substituted spending. It's not really capital gains. That's around about $10 billion for households. Uh, an increase in share values, bonds, and insurance reserves. And the Reserve Bank keeps these figures. That shows that they, they rose $62 billion to $1.193 billion, sorry, trillion in the year to the end of March. So overall, New Zealand's households who own assets, own their houses and own shares, their collective worth rose by $307 billion over the COVID year. So that works out at around $92,000 on average for each household which has assets. And they're collectively worth up to $714,000 each. However, those who didn't have assets, who are renters or the young, disabled on benefits, they haven't actually done very well during this COVID period. We saw a $25 a week increase in benefits from the government and a doubling, one-off, of the winter energy payments. That means uh, couples who are on benefits with children received a total of about $2,560 extra from the government to help them get by in the COVID year. However, rents rose by around $50 a week to around $500 over the year, so that means they got an extra $2,560 from the government but they had to pay it back to landlords in the form of $2,600 extra in rent. So, net, those people who don't own assets are worse off in COVID. Those people who did are on average $92,000 better off during COVID. That is the K-shaped recovery that's played out in New Zealand over the last year. It's not fair. It's also not healthy in the long run. And at some point, there will be a reckoning on this. Young people, Māori, renters, the disabled, Pacifica, will understand what their government, a Labour government, did 
during COVID to make the rich much, much richer and to not help them much at all. This isn't unique all around the developed world. This has happened, although to be fair to the likes of America and Australia, they did give big cash payouts across the board to everyone. But the core message, which is that the COVID recovery orchestrated by banks and governments was all about pumping up the value of assets because that's the way central banks believed the only way they could really help the economy because they'd already cut interest rates to naught. And they did it by handing over freshly printed money to people who own bonds, who typically are quite rich. So that's something to think about as we um, head into the second year of the COVID recovery. Now, what else happened in the news in the last day or so? Nanaya Mahuta, the local government minister, released the biggest amount of detail yet on the Three Waters proposals. This is a plan to amalgamate the water assets from 67 councils into, we now know, four regional water authorities. One from Auckland up to the top, uh, one from Auckland down the west coast, one from the east coast down to uh, Wellington and also including the top of the North Island and then basically the bottom of the, north, the, bottom of the South Island. The hope of the government was that councils would sign up to this voluntarily. The government points out that over the next 40 years or so, they're going to have to invest around about $150 billion just to uh, bring their water systems up to speed and also to reinvest in underinvestments over the last 30 years. And the government says that's going to cost ratepayers somewhere, if they did nothing, on average between $1,900 and $9,000 a year. The government says, hey, we'll bring in these uh, more efficient four authorities and that will save you um, thousands of dollars because instead of an increase in your water costs of $1,900 to $9,000, we'll have an increase of only $800 to $1,640. And um, this is the government's argument to the councils that they need to essentially hand over their assets to these new water authorities and avoid those future costs. But um, it looks like there's a lot of pushback from the councils. In particular, Auckland Mayor Phil Goff, who's, who's crucial in this, because Watercare would, in theory, take over all of the water assets north of Auckland, um, would see its uh, costs increase. And in theory, Phil Goff is warning, this would see Aucklanders effectively subsidise uh, the improvement of poor water networks in the North Island. There's also opposition from the Whangarei Council as well, and there's even talk in some smaller councils about the government effectively stealing or appropriating assets from councils. There's going to be a fight on this, but ultimately the government has the power to legislate to force this through if it wants. I don't think it really wants to do that because picking fights with every council in the land during a council election year is not going to be very healthy for your popularity, but it's something that um, they have an option to do. The Carrot, the government offered, of $791 million in little bits and pieces to pull the councils across the line, obviously hasn't worked, and clearly it's not big enough, particularly when you look at the scale of the underinvestment and the $150 billion that's required in the next uh, 30 years. Elsewhere in uh, news that's breaking uh, today and around today, got a report out of Business Desk that there was a $10.9 billion health sector infrastructure deficit. Um, not too much of a surprise there. Uh, we have systematically underinvested in infrastructure over the last 30 years 
and not accounted for the um, million extra people who turned up or were born. Uh, and that is a factor we should all think about. Also, um, we have uh, news out from the ANZ Business Survey that 84% of retailers want to increase their prices in the next three months. And that will be a key factor to watch. Will businesses be able to pass on their price increases for their inputs into the prices of their retail goods and services? And if that happens, and you see a significant and more permanent lift in inflation, you'd in theory see interest rates rise quicker than within the next year, which is what the Reserve Bank said um, a month or so ago. We'll see. The same issues are being faced all around the world, and at the moment central banks are holding off until they see clear evidence that inflation has risen. They don't want to jump the gun too early, like they did in the wake of the global financial crisis. So they're still printing um, around about a trillion dollars a year at the moment in cash. That big $10 trillion lot was done in the first six to nine months after the beginning of COVID. Okay, that's a dawn chorus for July the 1st. But before I go, I wanted to uh, play you an interview that I did with um, Nick Goodall from uh, CoreLogic. CoreLogic came out with its figures yesterday and we talk about what's happening in the housing market and which, which markets are running the hottest and slowing down a little bit and also the potential effects of a DTI tool from the Reserve Bank and how investors are currently thinking about the government's moves to limit the tax deductibility of uh, interest costs on debt. Ka kete anō. Talk again tomorrow. I'm joined here by Nick Goodall, who is the Head of Research at CoreLogic. Nick, um, you've done a fresh version of the CoreLogic House Price Index. What have you found uh, this month? Yeah, that's right. So um, for the month of June, we've actually seen that the rate of growth has slowed once again. Um, so the property market in New Zealand grew at 1.8% over June, which is a slight reduction on the previous month in May when we saw a 2.2% growth rate. So further evidence, I suppose, of that gentle deceleration that we've noticed the month before as well. And uh, what about the sort of um, volumes and differences you're seeing in various regions? Yes, I think that's what's the really interesting part now is that we've seen such strong growth and now we are seeing this slowdown. The key is going to be to watch to see how the slowdown impacts different parts of the country. And really interestingly, we've seen the rate of growth slow down in 12 of the country's um, 18 largest markets with a further three that actually recorded a drop in values over the month. So that was quite a surprise to us. I think we were expecting to see the slowdown, not necessarily to see values actually start to decrease. But that was the case in Gisborne, um, where we saw a drop of 0.9%. So it's certainly not falling out of the sky, but 0.9% over that monthly read. Um, but it's worth looking at that longer-term context where we're seeing values in Gisborne grow at 35% over the last 12 months. Um, the other two areas to see a minor drop were New Plymouth at 0.2% down and Napier at negative 0.1%, so pretty much flat for Napier, but in that negative territory. It's hard to know um, what's in people's minds when they um, make a transaction, but we've got a few things on the move at the moment. We've got the um, the LVR restrictions in, uh, we've got the government um, proposing, although yet to detail the mm-hmm. um, changes to um, tax deductibility for landlords and which properties will apply and which won't. And uh, thirdly, there's some suggestion that the Reserve Bank will put up interest rates 
next year and that already you're seeing for longer term mortgage rates some some increases um so what what of those factors do you think are are uh, in the mix i think it's probably just going to be a combination of those um i think what it also says is that we've now been a few months since we've started to see the mood start to change we've no expectations of the strong growth we've recently seen are starting to wane and maybe now we're seeing those vendors who previously would have held on for a, a higher price maybe now are accepting that you know the values aren't as high as they were previously um one of the biggest changes i think in the last few months we have seen is we have seen that reduction in investor activity and i'd say that's mostly in reaction to the lvr changes so up to 40 percent deposit requirement now and the reason we think that is because it's a very similar pattern of behaviour or um, you know, transaction going on at the moment and activity as we saw in September 2016, which was the last time the LBR restrictions required a 40% deposit for those investors. So we think it's a similar reaction this time around. But of course, there'll be the rest of it weighing on people's mind that maybe you don't want to pay quite as much for your property if interest rates are going to go up in the future or nearish future. Um, as well as the fact that for those investors, they can't quite make the same profit if in the future, if they're buying a property from today or from, from end of March, they're not going to be able to get the same profit without, without being able to write off that interest um, cost in their, in their tax returns at the end of the year. So I'd say it's a combination of all. I'd certainly seen a reduction in demand, which will have been mostly influenced by those LBR changes. Yeah, um, during June, um, the Reserve Bank announced that it had been given provisional permission to um, introduce a debt-to-income multiple. They still haven't decided um, what type of uh, speed limit they might impose or which uh, level of debt to income multiple they might use. They suggested uh, six or seven, but uh, didn't uh, specify a preference. Um, it's early days, and there's lots of green lights to be um, pushed or not pushed <laughs> before we get something, and it may not be until well into next year before the Reserve Bank's even ready to use it. But um, given what you know about uh, the lending that's going to different types of buyers in terms of their debt-to-income multiples, how much of an impact would a 6 or a 7 DTI limit um, using the same you know, speed limit system that we have for LVRs, how much impact might that have? Yeah, look, I think it's first worthwhile recognising <coughs> excuse me, that um, we don't expect the DTI restrictions to come in any time this year. I think you know, having this quality cost price index data for June you know, showed that we've seen that further reduction in growth and even a bit of turnaround in some areas probably reaffirms that position where the Reserve Bank won't feel the need to put any further restrictions on the market and they'll certainly let this play out for a few months before making any big decision about even going and consulting on what those restrictions would look like. Um, yeah, looking at the paper that they released, I think you know it's worth saying that there'll be certainly some investors who borrow at high ratios of um, debt to income that would be impacted and would be unable to continue to, to act in the market. So we would see a further pullback from that part of the market. The key question would be, would there be enough people, you know, other unoccupiers, um, other investors that aren't at high debt to income levels that would be able to make up for some of that, um, that loss of those investors? It's hard to know at this stage. Um, but I do think the fact that we're seeing this, this reduction right now with a slowdown probably says that uh, there's, there's less need for it. And when it does come in, um, it, it might actually turn the market around even further. We may actually see you know, a more firm price drop across the country if we did get to that point. But um, I would reiterate, we don't think we're going to get to a point in this, this cycle, I suppose, where the debt-to-income restrictions will be required to be brought in by the um, Reserve Bank. We think it's more likely that in the longer future, that um, they look at a combination of the DTIs and LVRs. They might reduce the LVRs 
and introduce the DTIs, but we're talking a wee while away from now, I think. Yeah, the Reserve Bank's own um, papers um, announcing this uh, plan suggested that a an L, a DTI of six or seven, particularly seven, wouldn't have much impact on first home buyers. Would um, affect investors more, and their overall impression was that it wouldn't take too much uh, off um, house prices, i.e., unlikely to drive a, a big slump. Um, how does that uh, feel to you, given what you know about people's um, leverage and uh, who's buying and who isn't? Yeah, I do think it would restrict a number of investors. And so, as I say, with that that pullback in demand from a, from a section of the market, I do think that you'd start to see, you know, you might start to see that imbalance start to change in terms of, you know, supply starting to lift, demand not quite as strong, so you don't get that FOMO, that fervent nature of the market, which pushes those prices up. So I think you'd certainly, if we did see the introduction of those anytime soon, um, you would see at least a flattening out. Um, but I think that there's a risk here of, of some areas, especially those that have gone through very strong growth phases, uh, which have reduced the overall affordability, which means that those prices are at very high levels now, especially when you compare it to income, um, that you might actually see a price drop in some of those areas. Uh, one thing that's uh, interested me in these various restrictions and <laughs> changes to tax rules that are coming through is obviously the Reserve Bank and the government are very keen to ensure that they don't um, uh, restrict lending for new builds and for builds off the plan, particularly of uh, medium to higher density um, new homes, in particular um, townhouses and apartments. What's your view on um, how keen the banks are to play ball on this? Because in theory, you know, if you restrict all of the lending, particularly to investors, uh, into existing homes and um, encourage them to buy off the plan uh, and also first home buyers off the plan or, or new homes, in theory, the banks need to step up and maybe change their appetites a bit. But what's your view on, on, on how how keen or otherwise or or how the banks might change their policies or not? Yeah, look, I think it's certainly an area where they have previously shown more caution. Um, it's been really interesting, obviously, seeing them now have tailored interest rates. Both ANZ and ASB have got very low floating rates for people that do choose to build new. Um, so I think it shows that their appetite is, is changing in that area. They're certainly making it more attractive. Does that change their credit decisioning process? You know, maybe not necessarily, but I think the fact they're making this concerted effort probably says that they're going to look at making sure that their, their risk is appropriate as well or their risk assessment is appropriate as well and that they aren't being overly cautious when lending to people who are actually contributing towards the um, supply increase here in New Zealand as well. So I'd say there has been a bit of a, a recent change towards that, but it is worth recognising that in the past they have been quite cautious around um, lending to new builds just because um, it's obviously a longer process and, and a more uncertain one for them and so they don't want to have too much of their, their debt tied up in that area. What are you seeing in terms of applications and um, lending approvals and sales of uh, new builds off the plans? Do, you, do your figures capture all those sales and loans? Yeah, it's really hard to um, 
to get a clear view on this. Um, many new builds are all processed through the data in different ways, so it's really hard to get a good feel for what's going on. Of course, we get the early view of what's happening from a consenting perspective, but it's um, very difficult when you get through to the finalisation process because each of the councils manage the data in different ways and doesn't necessarily flow through um, in our processes as well. So we don't get a firm number in terms of how many are completed or, or being linked. Um, for. Um, so, yeah, a very difficult one to capture on that one, and one that we're sort of doing some work right now to try and understand it better right along that full pipeline from what's going on from consenting, from greenfields processes, brownfields, and everything. So, yeah, more to come on that one, but at this stage, it's very hard to get a clear picture on what's actually happening at that lending point for new builds. And um, the government is um, obviously uh, very keen to see uh, investors discouraged, but not first home buyers. Um, what are you seeing in terms of market share for first home buyers versus investors and owner occupiers? Yes, I mean, they're certainly very keen to ensure investors are turning towards new builds as opposed to um, existing properties. And what we have seen, we've seen a drop um, from when they sort of peaked in, in May, uh, March, sorry, where investors were a larger share of the market. They have reduced back down again um, in the last couple of months. So in May, they dropped down about 2 or 3% share of the market. And then when you look at uh, first-home buyers, they've really been the group that's made up for that drop as well. So first-home buyers who are hovering around about the 21% mark in March, they've now jumped to um, sort of 24% of the market. So, um, yeah, so quite a bit of a switch in the last few months and certainly mostly a reflection of the LVR limits as opposed to the um, as opposed to the government tax changes, um, although they will, of course, be weighing on many investors' minds for those especially that would have otherwise been buying an existing property because it won't quite be as profitable anymore. So uh, there is a slowdown going on, uh, and um, that will um, be welcomed by uh, the government and a lot of first-home buyers. What's your feeling about the trajectory of the slowdown and whether we actually go into... Uh, price reductions, which not many people have forecast at this point, and the, the, the um, trajectory of the slowdown suggests that we're still looking at house price inflation for most of the rest of the year. Yes, yeah, so I think that yeah, it's worth noting that 1.8% growth across the country is still relatively strong for one month, but it is a dial back from the 2.2% the previous month, and I think it was 3 odd percent the month before. So it is a relatively calm slowdown. I think the interesting thing from the data for us this time around was to see those um, minor drops in some parts of the country. And I think that's probably the key thing to watch now is that there'll be some areas where demand will not be able to keep up with, um, with, with what's been previous. And so we will, we will be likely to see you know, at least a flattening out and certainly have a bit of volatility come through the rest of the year. Um, and as I said, it'll be some of these places that have seen very strong growth recently that have really stretched affordability. And what that's going to mean is there's fewer and fewer people available to stretch their funds to get to that level um, of, of property price. And so we might actually see, you know, a bit of a, a bit of a, a minor reduction in pricing there. I think the key thing, though, for a, for a real drop to occur, you kind of need two things. You probably need to see a lift in unemployment. You need to see people that um, are, are encouraged to sell their property and encouraged to sell it for a price that um, that, that you know previously wouldn't have got. So for a discounted price. Um, 
And so their, their expectations really have to drop and they have to think, well, if I don't sell it now, then it's going to be worth less in the future. Um, and so the more that we see of this data that's turning negative, the more that might weigh on those vendors' mind and they might say, well, I've got to take the price today rather than hold out for a better price in the future because we can only see things getting worse because um, demand is reducing because you know forecasted interest rates are increasing, which will, of course, make it um, harder for you to service mortgages. Um, and we know that that investor market certainly being looked at very strongly by the government to try and reduce their activity, and that, that is looking, meaning that their profits are reducing, which means there won't be the same demand or activity from that group of the market too, so they won't be willing to pay the same prices they have in the past. So there's certainly a bit of a potential inflection point coming right now. Will it be across the board? Maybe not. Um, and I think without a big change in the economy, it's unlikely to drop significantly, but there will be pockets of the country that uh, may see a bit of a, a decrease in, in the market um, you know, throughout the rest of the 2021. Yes, uh, rational expectations and irrational expectations are tricky mm. things to follow. <laughs> Thank you very much. Very much so. Uh, Nick Goodall, the head of research at CoreLogic, about the latest figures through uh, on the um, house prices and house values uh, in New Zealand. Thank you very much, Nick. Cheers, appreciate it. Thanks, Bernard.